After the fall of the Soviet Union, the post-Cold War order witnessed a third wave of democracy that heralded the collapse of communist and authoritarian regimes across the world. So how and why did China's Communist Party survive? I'm James Evans here at the Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies, and today I'm talking to Martin Dimitrov, the Associate Professor of Political Science at Tulane University and a former Fairbank Centre postdoctoral fellow about how authoritarian regimes like China's are capable of not just surviving, but thriving. So Martin, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So one of your observations that you've spoken about in the past is that no communist regime has lasted longer than 69 years. So that's the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1991. Mm. China turns 69 next year. So is the Chinese Communist Party likely to break this record or will we see a collapse of all order in China? Well, that is the big question that um, many people in the China field are thinking about. And there are various ways of calculating the longevity of communist regimes. So one way of thinking about the Soviet Union is that it only lasted for 68 years. Another one is 74 from 1917 to 1991. So if we calculate the longevity of the Soviet Union as 74 years, then China has another five years to match it. And then in another five years, we'll have potentially a leadership transition. So that will be an interesting time. When I think about the longevity of communist regimes, I explore the aspects of governance in, in communist regimes that prove to be ultimately unsuccessful. And then I compare those with how the Chinese Communist Party is ruling. And what this comparison has revealed for me is that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union stopped being adaptive at some point in the early 1980s. So to the extent that China continues to have a Communist Party that is able to adapt, um, then there is no theoretical reason why the Chinese Communist Party could not match and surpass the uh, record of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Taking you up on that idea of adaptability, you published an edited volume called Why Communism Did Not Collapse, Understanding Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Asia and Europe, mm. um, with a the key word there being resilience. And you say that this is a function, resilience is a function of continuous adaptive institutional change. Is that how you understand the word adaptive when you use it in this context? Yes. Um, so... Um... This, this volume brought together a number of scholars working on Eastern Europe and China. And what united us was our shared effort to understand what the um, adaptations that are necessary to ensure resilience are. So we focused on changes in the economic system. Uh, we also looked at the inclusion of potential rivals uh, to the Communist Party. And we looked at ideological adaptation, and we also looked at um, systems of accountability. So the argument was that to the extent that communist regimes can adapt in these four areas, they can extend their um, lifespans. So you have a, a recent article that sort of takes this a, a bit further into mm. your research um, that you presented uh, here at Harvard this week. And you're talking about the idea of public opinion and authoritarian resilience in particular. Uh, and you say that these are intrinsically linked. How is that the case? So the standard understanding of authoritarian regimes has been that they're either not interested in public opinion or in another version of the argument, they may be interested in public opinion, but they're unable to evaluate public opinion. 
So what I argue is that both of these standard arguments, they're not supported by the increasingly rich archival evidence that has become available about how communist regimes ruled. So on the incapacity of communist regimes to assess public opinion, I have spent a lot of time documenting the various channels that communist regimes establish in order to deal with this problem. And um, I think in light of the documents that, that have become available, it is obvious that communist regimes do have the capacity to assess public opinion. Now, on the more important question of do they care about public opinion, and once they assess this public opinion, what do they do about it? So on that question as well, there is newly available evidence that indicates that communist regimes that survive for a long period of time assess public opinion, and then they respond to public opinion in order to create an image of themselves as responsive and accountable to popular demands. So one important pillar of long-term communist regime resilience is this responsiveness to public opinion, at least in the way that I have made that argument. Yeah, and so there are obviously several different mechanisms by mm. which a regime can respond to public opinion. Um, so Lisa Blythe, for example, talks about competitive market-style mechanisms. Um, Beatrice Maglioni also talks about the idea of competitive elections. Um, and these big public-facing sort of uh, spectacles mm. uh, seem to do a very good job in some cases when we think of you know, Russia or Iran of making the populace feel like they have some kind of voice in the system. Is that also the case with China? Right. Um, well, China doesn't have competitive elections, um, so that is one important difference. But I also think of um, responding to public opinion as a strategic move by a communist regime, and I do think of, of, of the specific actions that are undertaken as spectacles. But the spectacles differ from regime um, to uh, regime. So given that there are no competitive elections in China, what are the relevant spectacles? Um, what I have been interested in is um, responsiveness to protests um, in, in, in China and also the publication of certain types of uh, media content that may look like investigative reporting. So the argument that I have made is that when the government responds positively to the demands of protesters and it accommodates these demands, it is um, transmitting a public image of um, a responsive and accountable government that takes seriously um, popular demands. Um, and this, this argument is based on a new data set that I have compiled with one of my PhD students from Tulane, uh, Zhu Zhang. And what we have done is we have collected data on 65,000 protests that have taken place in China between November 2013 and uh, June 2016. So this is um, the largest um, um, existing data set of, of protests in China, and it allows us to have um, more confidence in the arguments that we make about government um, uh, response to protests and um, about the conditions under which the government tolerates um, the demands of protesters. And then as a next step, we make an argument about the political logic of tolerating uh, these demands. So this is one type of spectacle, responding positively to protests. The other one is uh, media content, and of course this is a hot topic in China. Uh, because there's a lot of research on, on censorship. But what I have become interested in is um, the publication of uh, critical um, news stories um, in the Chinese media. 
and what political logic might be driving these types of news stories. So I wrote um, a little piece recently on the political logic of media control in China. And what I argued there is that China has two sets of media. It has the ones that are publicly uh, visible, the open media, and then it has internal media. And um, the critical content is typically found in the internal media. So there are very few stories of investigative reporting in China. And in each of those cases, because we can count them on the fingers of two hands, we can document that the story was first published in the internal media, and then it appeared in the open media, which then raises the question of why do the open or publicly available media publish investigative reporting? And my answer to that is that once an investigative report is published, then the government takes steps to address the problems identified in this investigative report, Thus, it can portray itself as um, responsive to uh, popular demands and to popular opinion. Sure. And one of the arguments that you make with that is that by being responsive, this in fact strengthens authoritarian rule and resilience of a regime. Indeed. Um, so this may not be um, an argument that is um, immediately um, obvious, uh, an argument whose logic is immediately obvious. But yes, indeed, um, this is what I argue, that by being responsive, uh, the government strengthens its resilience. How does that work? Even in the context of a communist regime, there is loyalty to the system. It is very difficult to estimate what percentage of citizens are loyal to the regime, but the regime is aware of the importance of increasing its level of loyalty, and it is actively searching for strategies that would allow it to do that. And responsiveness to popular opinion is one strategy for increasing the loyalty of the people. How does that work? Well, when people feel that they have a government that doesn't rule just by repressing them, but is actually actively trying to satisfy at least some of their preferences and some of their demands, they're more likely to go along with that government and uh, to be loyal to it. So in your previous answer, you just mentioned the difference between public and internal media. Yes. And one of the big challenges of studying authoritarian regime is this question of opacity and this question of actually being able to get hold of data sets or get hold of internal media, evidence that would support some of our claims. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered when studying authoritarian regimes? This is a very interesting and, and very big question. Um, some of the challenges that I have encountered in um, studying authoritarian regimes. Indeed, uh, the fundamental problem is that so many aspects of authoritarian politics are hidden from view. And as scholars, we have two options. One is to focus on what we can see, what is publicly observable and um, easily um, um, assessed, uh, visible, visible uh, 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 indicia of various phenomena and autocracies. Or alternatively, we can try to uh, locate sources that were not meant for public dissemination. So these are sources that are prepared for regime insiders. And sometimes they provide a very different um, logic for the same event. So we can observe an event and we can develop one theory on the basis of visible indicators and we can have quite a different theory on the basis of internal documents. Now back to your question. So what are the challenges that I have encountered in studying authoritarian regimes? I first want to talk about the incredible opportunities that have opened up in recent years for students of autocracy. And this is a 
primarily relevant for those that are interested in authoritarian regimes that no longer exist, such as the ones that collapsed in Eastern Europe in 1989. So what we have for those regimes is we have the key archival repositories, namely the Communist Party and state security archives that have become open to scholars. And they provide an incredible wealth of documents that allow us to interpret in a new light um, central aspects of authoritarian governance, such as um, um, the attention that authoritarian regimes in Eastern Europe paid to public opinion and the strategies that they developed in order to assess public opinion. Now, um, so this is not a challenge. This is um, a wonderful new opportunity. Um, of course, challenges exist um, for the uh, regimes that remain authoritarian. Um, it is difficult to um, arrange interviews if you're working on certain topics. And when it comes to archival access, of course, um, there, there are some, some difficulties. But even for a place like China, there is... Um, a surprising wealth of archival materials that has become available in China and um, outside of China. And I suppose one of the biggest issues with having an opaque regime is that it can be difficult to determine what the intent is of the government a lot of time. So we spoke uh, on the Harvard on China podcast a few weeks ago to Gary King here at Harvard um, and his research into social media and online censorship and how that might have an idea about what a government is trying to stop or promote. Um, is this a challenge that you face in your own research? This, this is the, the central problem that we all face, especially when we are developing theories on the basis of these um, easily observable indicia. So just to, to, to be more specific about that, when we observe the publication of an investigative report um, in the media, is this an investigative report or is this a report that first appeared in the internal media and then it appeared in the open media with a specific purpose? So this is one example where the intent of the government is very hard to discern. And if we look at the internal media, we would have one interpretation of the investigative report and we may call it a so-called investigative report because it looks more like strategically placed content. If we don't look at the internal media, and we observe a report that, for example, is talking about AIDS villages in Henan province, we may conclude that this is an investigative report, and then we'll have one view of the Chinese media. And then we'll have quite a different view if we look at the internal media. Right, so what, what you asked about is, is a central problem, not just in the study of China, but really um, in the study of any authoritarian regime, inferring government intent. So going to a few more examples of your own research on comparative authoritarianism, you're well known as someone who researches China and Eastern Europe in particular. Was your research inspired by your own growing up in Bulgaria? Yes, in a sense. I was born in 75, and then when the Berlin Wall collapsed in 89, I was 14, and like many others, I was completely taken by surprise. So in a sense... My interest in China is a reflection of growing up under communism and then when I was in college taking a course about a communist system that in some ways looked familiar in terms of institutions but then was so different in terms of the cultural underpinnings of the system. And then, of course, the other central difference was that 
This is a system that survived 89 and it somehow managed to marry a market economy with the Communist Party, which was not familiar to me from um, growing up under communism in Bulgaria in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. So what I did is I um, wrote my first book about intellectual property rights in China, which had nothing to do with comparative communism. But when that book was published, I went back to what I had always been interested in, which is exploring the commonalities and differences between the um, East European communist regimes and the um, Chinese um, communist system. We have a, a former student here at Harvard, Julian Gewurz, who has just written a book, Unlikely Partners, where he explores some of the links between China and Eastern Europe. Um, and it seems like there is a lot of uh, learning that went on, exchanges between these two countries. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, Mao's first visit outside of China after you know, a long break is to Yugoslavia and to go and see Tito. What do these historical links between China and non-Soviet Eastern European satellite states or Yugoslavia indicate about the nature of learning between communist regimes? This is a great question because this is one area in the subfield of Chinese politics that is not sufficiently explored. Um, there are some scholars that believe that China is unique and it, it was not influenced in any significant way by foreign countries. And this, of course, is a reductionist view, let's call it. Um, so what we learn by tracing the evolution of the interaction of China with various uh, East European countries is to what extent China's governance institutions are influenced by the Soviet and East European model. We also learn about China actively trying to avoid negative examples. And in a one, one such case certainly is in the 1990s. Now, of course, democratization is a wonderful thing, but from the point of view of the Chinese Communist Party, it is a very worrisome signal. So um, China learned at various periods in time. In the 1950s, it was learning from the Soviet Union about central planning. In the 60s, but then also in the 70s and early 80s, there was a lot of attention to uh, Yugoslavia and Hungary as models of a centrally planned economy that somehow managed to accommodate limited market mechanisms. And then in the 1990s, there was learning from the Soviet collapse, but there was also learning from the post-Soviet economic transformation. China in the 1990s was looking at Russia and it was looking at the rise of the oligarchs. And, um, you know, China, as we know, has more billionaires than, than the U.S. Uh, well, there are more members of the National People's Congress in China that are billionaires than members of the U.S. Congress. But what is interesting about the uh, Chinese billionaires is that collectively their wealth is a much smaller percentage of GDP than the wealth of the seven oligarchs in Russia in the 1990s. So China has been actively learning from uh, various East European regimes from the very beginning of the regime um, to the current day. There's a lot of evidence, as you said, in the 90s to the post-1992 reforms with Jiang Zemin actually referencing collapse in Eastern Europe as a strong reason for why those reforms went through and indeed for why China's economy has taken off the way it has done, why the economy and China's governance continues to change even today. Right. In the contemporary period, China would like to think it is proof of a 
model of governance that is non-democratic but successful. So there's increasing evidence that particularly with things like One Belt, One Road, as China goes abroad, that even though there is this claim that China is not trying to export the China model, there are aspects of its government that are starting to appear in other countries. You know, we have the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, saying that authoritarianism to an extent is the way forward for his country. Do you see evidence of China's governmental strategies being exported abroad, especially to places like Russia? Yes, um, this is a great question. So indeed, um, this evidence uh, can be traced back to the early 2000s. So in 2001, United Russia sent a delegation to China so that um, the party of power in Russia could learn from the Chinese Communist Party. We don't have details as to what exactly they learned, but the very fact that this delegation went there is indicative of Russian interest in the Chinese government model. More recently, we have had a Russian law about NGOs and foreign agents, which bears a striking similarity to the Chinese law and was passed after the Chinese law. So this is evidence of active learning and copying. And then the most recent instantiation of, of learning from China is uh, control of the internet. So Russia used to have significant, let's say, um, internet freedom and considerably less censorship um, than China. But this has just changed in the past month. And we have a, a former um, Fairbank affiliate, Sebastian Heilman, who yes. is now at Merricks, who talks mm -hmm. a lot about what he calls digital Leninism and this idea that the internet and big data and digital and AI are really going to be the new forefront of adaptive authoritarianism in terms of controlling populations. Um, is that an area that you see your field of authoritarian studies going? Yes, well, there, there's a massive effort to understand how the Chinese government is using technology in order to collect an extraordinary amount of data on all of its um, citizens. And this effort is in part occurring at Harvard because of Gary King and his co-authors, but there, there are other scholars. Um, do I see the future of studies of authoritarianism going in a direction where more research is done on digital Leninism, absolutely, because this, of course, is a priority for authoritarian regimes, not just in China and Russia, but elsewhere um, in places like uh, Vietnam and, and elsewhere um, in the world. So in the China field, um, there is a significant effort to understand the specific techniques that the Chinese government is using in order to collect um, extremely detailed information on all of its um, citizens. And this effort occurs at, at various um, uh, universities in the country. So um, given my interest in comparing China with Eastern Europe, we often think of East Germany and the Stasi as being the um, technologically perfect dictatorship because the Stasi, by one account, had 174,000 informants in a country with a population of 16 million people. So over 1% of East German citizens were informants for the Stasi. And um, there's this sense that the Stasi had uh, the capacity for pervasive monitoring. Well, it was pervasive for its time in the 1980s. What China has today is a system for monitoring that no other authoritarian regime in history has ever been able to mount. One of our professors here described it as not Orwellian, but Huxleyan in its approach. Right. It is a brave new world.
our final question before our quick fire round is, is adaptability of an authoritarian regime therefore going to be at the forefront of Xi Jinping's mind? Well, I'm sure that this is something that he's thinking about. Um, so um, there's no doubt in my mind that Xi Jinping wants the Chinese Communist Party to stay in power. Now, what is not clear to me, but potentially also the, to the Chinese leadership, is what is the best strategy for doing that? What we do know from the Soviet experience is that radical reform of the communist system of governance is something that um, speeds up the process of decay and regime collapse. So what Xi Jinping is banking on is preserving the current system, and there's one central aspect of the current system, which is the leadership transition norm, which we have some uncertainty about. So we don't know whether he will respect that norm. So as we think about the future of China, um, there are um, significant uncertainties um, about the capacity of the Chinese Communist Party to preserve the currently existing system. And when we think about this issue of adaptability, of course, adaptation is a difficult process because there has to be some adaptation, but there can't be too much of it. So the best strategy is to implement limited adaptation on the fringes and not touch the core. So as to how this is executed in practice, it's extremely hard to know. We shall see. Right. So to finish off, we have our quickfire round. We call it the Fairbank Five. And it's just to give our listeners more of a sense of how you came to study China. Because for a lot of people, it's not necessarily the most natural choice of research. Right. So our first question is, what is your favourite Chinese food? Mapo Dofu. I grew up in Bulgaria where we like hot food. So, um, I mean, I, I love Chinese food, especially hot Chinese food. It's also simple. I don't like very complicated dishes. Uh, what's your favorite place in Greater China? Well, in Greater China, it's, it's Hong Kong. Um, in China itself, it's Kashgar. Really? Yes, yes. Um, so I was in Kashgar in um, 2001. I mean, the, 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 the one and only time, but this was three weeks after 9-11. So there was some rumor that uh, Osama bin Laden might be hiding in China. Um, and um, there was um, quite a few uh, foreign diplomats and journalists in Kashgar on vacation. I myself was on vacation over the uh, October 1st uh, break in my language program. And I loved Kashgar because it was so different from um, anything else that I had seen in China. And it's the only place at that point in time where I found fresh figs, which happened to be my favorite non-Chinese food. What is your favorite Chinese saying or Chengyu? Mamalai. We take our time sometimes. And um, I mean, this was um, especially useful as I was doing uh, research uh, for my dissertation and my first book, where I had a lot of time to do research and getting certain interviews uh, required an extraordinary amount of patience and persistence but really patience. Um, I had 14 months and um, some interviews took 13 months to arrange. So indeed, my Malai. A good mantra for anybody studying China or any authoritarian regime. Persistence pays off. Uh, a book that you have read recently on China that you would recommend? 
A book that I have read recently that I would recommend is Nara Dillon's book, uh, Radical Inequalities. It is an extremely important book on the emergence of the welfare state in China. It is a deeply informed book that is based on primary research with um, government documents. I like the book because it makes a counterintuitive claim uh, about how the Chinese welfare state evolved. I also love the book because it is comparative and we need more research in China that makes a conscious effort to place the Chinese case in comparative perspective. I would second that recommendation. Um, and I like her claim, as you said, the counterintuitive claim that the communist regime actually installed and deepened inequality rather than getting rid of it, as you would expect the Maoist regime to have done so. Yes, and as it did in, in other settings. So uh, part of the attraction of, of that book for me is that it, it makes a very convincing case for how different China was in the 1950s and 60s from the East European regimes, at least with regard to um, the welfare state. I mean, in other areas, it, it was actually quite similar. So yes, indeed, a fascinating book. Finally, a class that you took about China that changed your thinking. Well, it's a class that changed my life. My very first class on Chinese politics that I took in the spring of 1996 with a um, Harvard PhD by the name of Kevin Lane, who taught at Franklin Marshall College, where I did, I did my undergraduate degree. I was going to be a clinical psychologist. I also majored in French. Um, so. I did not really think that I would become a political scientist um, or, you know, a China person. But, but that class, at that point in time, when the transition to the market was still uncertain, when Deng Xiaoping was still alive, and also only six or seven years after the collapse of communism in Europe, where I was actively thinking about what exactly brought this collapse and why is that other regimes did not collapse, it opened up um, an incredible opportunity for me to learn about a different civilization, a different part of the world in which a communist party had survived up to 1996. And now, 21 years later, I'm still thinking about how that communist party has survived. So it was a great class. And how that communist party continues to provide a brave new world. Indeed. Martin Dimitrov, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 